Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at uh, an article that uh, Andrew Risk sent to me. He's uh, he's um, he's been he's the one who's asked several questions on the Cerebral Faith website, and I've responded in uh, sort of uh, blog articles that are similar to reminiscent of William Lane Craig's question of the week. If you've uh, been to the Cerebral Faith blog, you know that I take questions and about various different topics on the Christian faith, and I respond to those. Um, and Andrew, he ha- he sent me uh, this article from Reddit from an atheist who goes by the uh, the pseudonym All is Vanity. And he wanted me to write a blog response, but for numerous factors, I decided that it might be best to tackle this on the podcast. And today to help me tackle this uh, objection, which is uh, I call the I call it the argument from visionary resurrection experiences, um, if you've debated the evidence for the resurrection with skeptics online, you'll know that that's that's really their two uh, those who aren't Jesus mythicist quacks. Uh, the two arguments they usually tend to go for are the antecedent probability objection, which is uh, like Bart Ehrman's go-to argument against the resurrection, or they'll go with, uh, oh, it was just a vision. They didn't really believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. They just saw Jesus uh, in a vision sort of thing. Uh, to help me respond to that, I have Michael Lycona on the podcast today. Michael Lycona is a, a New Testament scholar and author. He is Associate Professor in Theology at Houston Baptist University and is the Director of Risen Jesus. Lycona specializes in the resurrection of Jesus and the literary analysis of the Gospels as Greco-Roman biographies. His noteworthy books include The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, which he co-wrote with Gary Habermas. His book, the, the academic, which I consider the academic version of that book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach, and Why Are There Differences in the Gospel? Dr. Lycona, it's good to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks, Minton. Oh, Minton, sorry. Evan, this will be fun, brother. <laughs> yeah, it will be. Um, so how have you been doing before we before we get into this? Oh, pretty well. You know, during this pandemic, it, things haven't been too much different for me. It's, uh, you know, I do a lot of research and writing from the home. So that's what I do and um, teach online for Houston Baptist University. And um, so that didn't change any of the the main thing that changed for me was I didn't travel and speak at conferences as much, but that was replaced by doing a whole lot of interviews like what we're doing right now. And frankly, it was kind of nice not to be on the road so much last year and, and this year. So um, it's been nice, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I got to attend the National Conference on Christian Apologetics in uh, on online, and usually... Uh, usually I can't go to that because it just costs so much to stay at a hotel and you've got the ticket costs on top of that and gas and 
Um, and conferences that are like in different states where I have to get on an airplane, that's really expensive to travel. But I've, I've been able to attend uh, way more conferences because of them doing it online. Um, and uh, but I do prefer to actually go to the conferences because it's, you know, you still get the lectures, you still get the educational material, but you don't get that that fellowship. That's right. Um, yeah, I go to I go to these conferences and I I meet a lot of people I know on Facebook on uh, you know people who have visited the Cerebral Faith website. Uh, they you know, um, and we hang out and sometimes we go to places uh, before and after and during the the conference and just talk about stuff and uh, we meet face to face and it's always good to go to the lobby and buy books, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I, I was in, um, you know, I was getting really totally sold on this online stuff because it is effective and there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, but I did a conference, I spoke at a conference at, near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania last month, and I came back and it's like, yeah, there's so much you miss when you're not there in person. It's uh, So yeah, you're right. There's nothing like the personal touch being there in person. Yeah. So let's get into this uh, this article from this this Reddit atheist. Um, some of the words are not transliterated, so Doctor Lycona is going to jump in and tell me what the heck these scribbles say. Uh, but most of it is in English, and there are a lot of Greek words that are transliterated. So I'm going to read a little bit, and then he's going to stop and comment. So here we go. The Reddit atheist says the word used for appeared. Ophthe in 1 Corinthians 15 is not sufficient to claim anyone really saw Jesus alive again in the flesh, according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, volume 5, pages 330. Ophthe is, quote, the characteristic term to denote the non-visual presence of the self-revealing God, end quote. The word was used to signify being, quote, in the presence of revelation as such, without reference to the nature of its perception or to the presence of God who reveals himself in his word. It thus seems that when Ophthe is used to denote the resurrection appearances, there is no primary emphasis on seeing as sensual or mental perception. The dominant thought is that the appearances are revelations, encounters with the risen Lord who reveals himself or is revealed, confer Galatians 1.16. They experienced his presence, end quote. Um, oh, you froze. Is the Damascus, is, how much of that do you pay? Okay, so you froze on me immediately after you finished quoting. Uh, okay. Yeah, quoting from uh, Galatians 1.16, they experienced his presence, the very end of that second paragraph. Okay, good. Uh, it it didn't, didn't go too long. Um, so then there's another quote that says, when Paul classifies the Damascus exp uh, appearances with the others in 1 Corinthians 15.5, this is not merely because he regards it as equivalent. It is also because he regards this appearance similar in kind. In all the appearances, the presence of the risen Lord is a presence in transfigured corporeality, 1 Corinthians 15.42. It is the presence of the exalted Lord from heaven, end quote, uh, page 359 of the commentary he's reading from. Yeah. 
Um, then he quotes uh, the meaning of Ophthay. Why, why don't we stop there? Yeah. And let okay, me I was almost. There. I was also I was almost to the designated stopping place anyway that I Oh okay. I mean we can get to that other paragraph. You yeah. you gave me this uh, yesterday and I read it over lunch yesterday, but um I, I I should probably address a few things there and then we can go with that next paragraph. So in terms of when he says they're they're similar in kind when Paul's mentioned this in 1 Corinthians 15, that is just simply the contributors um interpretation. There is nothing intrinsic in the word itself, ofe, that would seem to be, that would make the suggestion. So it's kind of like this, Evan. If, let's say, Evan said he talked with Mike, and Tim said he talked with Mike, and Kurt said he talked with Mike, okay, does that mean, because they're using the same word talked, that they're referring to the same kind of experience? Well, maybe Evan is referring to what we're doing right now, over over the internet, whereas Tim is referring to a phone call and Kurt is referring to uh, talking in person. So the nature of the those experiences could be different, even though the word is the same. So by Paul saying here in 1 Corinthians 15, and he's 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 quoting from an oral tradition, one or two oral traditions that he received probably from the Jerusalem apostles. The fact that he uses the term ofe. Uh, for all of the appearances doesn't necessarily mean that it's referring to the same uh, nature of those appearances. Now, where, what you're, the person who wrote this article, I don't, I don't know who he is um, or she, but whoever wrote this, all right, they are appealing to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament edited by Gerhard Kittel, which is a phenomenal research for word studies. However, um, you know, this 10 volume set, I mean, it, and it's great. I've got it. I've had it. I got it. I bought it when I was in graduate school. Um, and the thing is, it was published in 1933. And it had, I, I think, hundreds of contributors to it for the different words. And as could be expected, some of the contributions in there are of a higher quality than others. Unfortunately, this is not one of the ones of the highest quality, and it's easily, easily refuted what he is saying here in terms of the meaning of ofe referring or designating a heavenly visionary experience. Um, and the reason it's so easily refuted now, as opposed to back in 1933, is because we've got tools, electronic tools that help us, whereas they didn't back then. Uh, we have Bible software. So, for example, I have two kinds of Bible software. I have Logos Bible software, um, and I have Accordance Bible software. And both of them are phenomenal resources. Um, I use Logos mainly for commentaries um, and the early church fathers, things like that. I use Accordance for word studies and uh, searches in the original languages. You can do it in Logos. It's just not so easy. Um, accordance is very intuitive and easy. So, you know, I just type in the word ofe, press enter, and every time that word appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and the Greek New Testament pops up. And you can and you can see each verse that, that in which it appears. And you find that sometimes it does refer to God appearing in a heavenly vision outside of space-time. You also find that there are many instances, many instances, 
in which it refers to something appearing in space-time. So I just looked at these. It only took a couple seconds to bring these up. Let me just give you a few of them. So for example, um, in uh, Genesis 1-9, it's talking about creation. God separates the waters, the oceans, and land appears. So it's, that's not a heavenly vision. It's talking about land appearing in space-time. Genesis 18, 1, it says God appeared to Abraham. Now he appears to Abraham in this context in three persons, three men. They sit down with uh, Abraham. They converse with him. Abraham has a meal prepared for them and together they eat the meal. I mean, this is not a heavenly vision. This is uh, an event in which there's ocular vision. Um, Abraham sees it with his physical eyes. He sees them. It's a physical appearance within space time. In Exodus 3.2 and Acts 7.30, you've got God who appears to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. It's something that he sees with his eyes in space-time. In Exodus 16.10 and Numbers 14.10, Numbers 16.42, you have the glory of God that appears to the Israelites in a cloud over the tabernacle. It's something they all can see with their ocular, uh, it's ocular vision. In Judges 6, verses 11 and 12, you have an angel sits under an oak tree and appears to Gideon, and they carry on a conversation. Again, this is something that occurs in space-time, ocular vision. In second, yeah, and, and I want to interrupt about that, that, uh, that Gideon incident because you read the whole narrative. Hmm. It's definitely corporeal because he, he, he prepares a meal for it, and the angel of the Lord strikes the 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 stone and so it's not like it's not like this is uh this is not like in a dream that's that's exactly right yeah. go go on yeah then you have and that that's that's pertinent thanks for adding that then you got second kings 14 11 where you have the king of judah and the king of israel they appeared in person before one another's faces they appeared in person in battle against one another i mean what else could you say more clearly in that sense, that it's something that occurs in space-time. It's a physical appearance. Their presence, they were actually present, both of them, at this battle. And it's not referring to anything divine here. And then you've got in Acts 7.26, it's referring back to uh, when there were two Jews, when Egypt uh, held the Jews in captivity, um, you had two Jews fighting, and Moses appeared to them. He stood before them. But he appeared to them. In every one of these cases, the same term, ofe, uh, is, is present and is, is what is referred to. Now, not only can you just bring this up within seconds in Bible software, um, this is just the biblical literature. When you want to look at the Greek literature outside of the Bible, it's even more telling. Um, years ago, you would have had to comb through what's called the Loeb Classical Library Series, which would have cost you thousands of dollars, probably $7,000 to $10,000 for the whole thing. Um, the Greek uh, literature alone, it would have been several thousands of dollars. Um, so, and you'd have to look through there to find, you know, where Ophthe appears. Well, now within the last few years, uh, Harvard uh, University Press has made the, uh, Loeb Classical Library series available in a digital format that you can subscribe to. So I subscribe to it. I think it's like 150 the first year and $75 every year thereafter. So just for the fun of it, you just go there and you type in Ofe and um, you find just 
tons of references come up. Most of them are referring to ocular vision about something in space-time. Let me give you an example. In Plutarch's Life of Cicero, his biography of Cicero, the term ophthe appears three times. One of those occasions, it's referring, what it, it says, when Caesar went off to Spain, Cicero went to be with Pompey. And followers of Pompey were glad when Cicero appeared, ophthe. So it's just a physical appearance in space-time. Um, it can refer to, again, a heavenly divine, uh, a divine being imparting information within a vision. The, the point here is it's not what it's referring to. It's not referring to the nature of the appearance. It's just saying he appeared. And it can refer to either sense. So when we see the term ophe, it's it's an oculus. It's it doesn't mean anything about the nature of that appearance. You have to look at the context to get that. Yeah, I think this is I think this is a takeaway point for anybody who's doing any kind of exegesis um, or bi biblical studies. You can't just um, words can take on different meanings depending on what context they're in. Um, I like how Michael Heiser, I like Michael Heiser's example of the word run, R-U-N. Um, just by itself, you don't know what that means. It could mean the activity of the, the, the activity that's kind of like walking, except much faster. Um, I, I'm going to go for a run. It can mean, um, I'm going to run this software on my computer to get rid of the viruses, or um, uh, because it's allergy season, my nose will run. You have to look at the context to know what run means. Um, yeah, you could uh, run something past someone else too, right? Yeah. Let me run so, something past you. So that, those are very good points, um, and I'm, I'm going to continue reading. Uh, the article says, the meaning of ophthe, ophthe is the aorist passive form of the Greek verb horao, I see. The word is used nine times in the New Testament in relation to the raised Jesus. Luke 24, 34, Acts 9, 17, 13, 31, 26, 16a, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 8, four times, and 1 Timothy 3, 16. When used with the dative, it is usually transliterated, he appeared, and as such emphasizes the revelatory initiative of the one who appears. The sense is almost let himself be seen as opposed to something like he was seen. Uh, Stephen T. Davis, Christian Philosophical Theology, page 136. This is made clear in a passage from Philo. Hold on, hold on a second. Let me just comment there because, all right, yeah, go ahead and read the Philo one. Okay, for which reason it is said, not that the wise man saw, what word is that? Um, Ada. Ada, God, but that God appeared okay. to the wise man, for it was impossible for anyone to comprehend by his own unassisted power the true living God unless he himself displayed and revealed himself to him, end quote. Philo on Abraham's 17.80. Okay. So I can say Stephen Davis is a friend of mine. He's a good guy, really a good guy. Um, not only is he a great scholar, he's a great guy too. Um, but I, I don't think he's correct here. And the reason being is I went and most, I, I went back and I looked at most of those examples that I mentioned to you just a moment ago. 
where Ophthe appears uh, in the Septuagint. And in most of those instances, you have Ophthe plus the dative case. And it's referring to something in space-time, uh, where ocular sight within space-time. Uh, one thing I didn't mention was um, uh, uh, in that list was the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 12. And there it talks about how um, after the winter was over, flowers appeared on earth in the springtime. So, and it's using the date of sense there as well. So again, you can find instances where Ophthe plus the data appears to uh, heavenly vision um, outside of space-time, but you can also find plenty of instances of Ophthe plus the data where it, it doesn't. It's referring to ocular vision in space-time. So uh, these arguments aren't good ones that are being presented so far. The term Ophthe is innocuous. It's vague. It doesn't have anything to do. It carries no meaning whatsoever pertaining to the nature of an appearance that is determined by the context. It's merely saying that something appeared or was seen. Okay. So he, go he goes on to write, some scholars who favor new uh, objective visions rather than ordinary seeing argue that the New Testament's use of Ophthe entails this conclusion. Thus, Badham says, most New Testament scholars believe that the word ophthe refers to spiritual vision rather than to ocular sighting. The argument is that the religious use of ophthe is technical, marks a clear difference from ordinary visual perception of physical objects, and entails some sort of spiritual uh, appearance, vision-like experience, or apprehension of a divine revelation. Um, Ibid, page 136. Well, notice that um, Stephen says some scholars, and then he quotes Badham, who says most New Testament scholars. Um, I, I think for today, I forgot when Stephen wrote this, but for today, some scholars is correct. Most New Testament scholars uh, would be incorrect today. I don't know when Badham wrote that either. Um, I would say up through maybe the 1980s, Badham would have been correct, um, but it is not the case today. Uh, Gary Habermas did a study. I mean, he's been working on this for, for decades, of course, and um, his magnum opus is is getting closer and closer to publication now. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited about that. It's going to be awesome. Um, the ultimate and resurrection studies, of course. Um, but he did speak, I think in, in 2005, he wrote an essay, an article for the Journal for the Study of the Historical Jesus. The whole thing was uh, devoted to uh, speaking on the resurrection, speaking to the resurrection of Jesus. And he was, uh, Gary was sharing some of his preliminary findings. And if I remember correctly, it was something like close to 75% of critical scholars commenting on it today um, th think that the earliest Christians believed that Jesus had been raised physically, bodily from the dead and had appeared to them. So it wasn't some kind of a, a vision in heaven that Jesus was just assumed into heaven and exalted into heaven and appeared to others from there. No, it left behind an empty grave of some sort, and he appeared physically, bodily. So that's about three quarters of all scholars, critical scholars writing on it within recent decades um, are, are that opinion. So it was true prior to the 1980s that most scholars 
would have said, you know, it was a heavenly vision of some sort, but uh, not more recent times. Yeah. And also something I want to bring up is that when you read the New Testaments, they seem to be very, they, they seem to know like the difference between something actually a vision uh, appearing before their eyes and visions. And they don't use that, the vision terminology of the resurrection of Jesus. Like in the case, like in the case where um, Peter is broken out of prison by an angel and he leads them past the guards who just can't see him. The text says he thought he was seeing a vision, but then when he was outside the gates, he was like, Oh, wait a minute. Uh, th this, this actually happened to me. That's and then exactly you have right. that, then you have that whole uh, animals coming down on the sheet thing uh, right before Acts chapter nine, where um, where uh, Peter goes to see Cornelius. Um, he he realized that was a vision. There were not literally animals coming down out of the sky. So they the authors are the biblical authors are clear whenever a vision is actually happening and it's not in space and time. Yeah, I'd say that's usually the case. Yeah. So the this um, all the, the Reddit atheist all is vanity goes on to write. He, he quotes Rod Fringer from Paul's Corporate Christophany, page seventy nine ninety nine. Uh, quote: The Septuagint uses "okthe" thirty six times, with all but six referring to theophanic events or angelophanies. Likewise, of the 18 occurrences of Ophne in the New Testament, all but one refer to supernatural appearances to people, end quote. Note how horao doesn't necessarily mean to see with the eyes. Um, one, to see with the eyes. Two, to see with the mind, to perceive. No. Three, to see, i.e. become acquainted with by experience. To experience. Horao properly seen, often with metaphorical meaning, to see with the mind, i.e. spiritually see, i.e. perceive, with inward spiritual perception. Here is the only other place Paul describes his conversion. Let, let's stop right there, okay? And okay. then we can get to Galatians 1.16. So, um, actually, uh, Rob, is, uh, Rob Fingers is, uh, Finger is mistaken there. It's not 36 appearances. I counted 37 uh, this morning when I looked at... Um, within the Septuagint. Um, but even many of those refer to space-time. Now, if you want to just limit them to the New Testament, Ophe in the New Testament, then yeah, you could say, um, well, at least some of them uh, appear to be referring to like a heavenly vision, but not all of them. Remember, the, he's just assuming some of the, the vague ones mean that as well, um, like the ones in 1 Corinthians 15. But that, that's begging the question there. You, you're assuming the conclusion you want to get to when that's not what 1 Corinthians 15 is necessarily saying. It's vague there. So, um, But uh, there are a few cases in the New Testament, but again, most of them in the Septuagint do not refer. Um, well, I shouldn't say most of them. I should say a whole lot of them in the Old Testament do not refer to visions outside of space-time. A whole lot of them refer to ocular vision within space-time of animate or inanimate objects within space-time. Um, and then when he says it doesn't necessarily mean to see with the eyes, and then he provides three possible definitions. One is to see with the eyes. He's correct there, but that's not the point. Um, the term is intrinsically 
vague. It just does not give us a meaning of the nature of the appearance. That has to be uh, determined by the context itself. So that's um, what I wanted to share there. Okay. So in Galatians 1.16, he writes, God revealed. Apocalypsi. Uh, Apocalypsi, his son, in slash to me. The word for revealed, apocalypto, apocalypto was used to refer to visionary disclosure of transcendent realities. He, he's quoting here Marcus Bachmule, Bachmule, Revelation and Mystery in Ancient Judaism and Pauline Christianity, pages thirty-two to thirty-three. Uh, in apocalyptic literature and a Apocalypticism is rife throughout Paul's letters. He believed Jesus would return within his lifetime and that the world would end soon. Thus, this is another inference that these were apocalyptic visionary experiences and not physical encounters with a revived corpse. You yeah, what I would say to that, I mean, Bachmuel is a fantastic scholar. Um, I just don't agree with him there. Um, I think there are... Um, there are examples to the contrary. So, um, yeah, there are, when it, when it comes to visionary, you've got cases like 1 Corinthians 14, 6 and verse 26, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, where it does appear to be talking about like heavenly visions outside of space time. But then you've got at least three occurrences, perhaps even four in Paul, um, where Paul is referring to a revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's referring to the second coming, which seems to be something that would be something that is to occur in space time that can be viewed through ocular vision. So that would be in Romans 8, 19, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. But again, the, the term revelation itself, apocalypsis, um, is, is vague. It, it just, um, it, it's not necessarily referring to the nature of a revelation, it is just referring to an experience itself. And so I think in Galatians 1.16, um, it's just one of these where we're just not going to get the information that we want, that um, it's referencing the experience. It's referring to Paul's conversion experience. Um, I think, though, um, that the emphasis is on the content of that experience rather than the nature of that experience. Yeah. So like Jesus is appearing to Paul was divine revelation to him. That's it, right. Like, it wasn't just that he met some guy on the road. That's right. Okay. Um, so I'm going to continue reading now. Um, ap apocalypse. What was that word? Apocalypto. Apocalypto. I have a hard time pronouncing that. That's a mouthful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I could bite my tongue saying that if I tried to say it three times fast. Well, part of it is, you know, the the accent appears on a different syllable and said, don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, so Apocalypto, especially of divine revelation of certain transcendent secrets, Psalm 97, 2, Daniel 2, 19 and verse 22, both um, the odd. I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, he might he might have meant to put something else there. 28, um, 1 Kings 2, 27, 3, 21, Isaiah 56, 1, of the interp interpretation of prophetic visions. Uh, Tini, um, 
those, uh, let's see. Um, I, I'm not sure what that's, I'd, I'd go, I'd have to look at the, uh, the text to see how yeah. that's being used. Yeah. So anyway, it's, he says it's to impart a revelation to someone to, to give someone a revelation about something, um, of revelation of certain persons and circumstances of the inside of the end times. Okay. Uh, that was, that was yeah. not an easy section to read. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can go on to the next two paragraphs. Okay. Because so, that's not really saying anything different. Yeah. That's just, uh, I mean, I would just respond to that in the same way I responded to the past ones. You can get that in certain contexts like that, but it's not referring to that kind of, uh, of a revelation all the time. And so when you have a text that's ambiguous, it could be interpreted one of two different ways. Um, it is safest. Good hermeneutical practice uh, would require that you just kind of leave that one and you or you interpret it in view of other texts that are clear, that use the term or the concept in a clear sense. So in this case, you would say, and we can get to this in a little bit. Um, how, how does Paul view the, the resurrection of Jesus? Because if he is viewing the resurrection of Jesus as something that was, uh, occurred in space time, that it was physical material in nature, well, then, you know, he's not referring to the revelation of Jesus Christ in, in, you know, the, well, he might be in that, in, in this sense, the appearance to him, because if you go by the Acts account, it's post-ascension. It's after Jesus' ascension, whereas the Gospels talk about the other appearances as being uh, after the resurrection, but prior to the ascension. So that could account for the difference there. Um, yeah. So, but but still, the question is going to be, what did Paul think about resurrection? What did it involve? And we'll get to that in just a little. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. And also something I point out whenever whenever skeptics point to Acts um, is that uh, even though those with Paul did not see a man standing there, they didn't they didn't see Jesus. They didn't hear what he was saying. They did see a light and they heard a voice. I think the text says that they interpreted it as thunder. Um, yeah. But something what that something was happening outside of his mind because if it was just in his mind he, he would be the only one experience that and everybody else would just see all they would see is just paul freaking out that that's exactly right evan it um it does appear to be something that either it occurred in space time or or it was an objective vision meaning not subjective it wasn't an, a hallucination it was an objective vision that even if it happened in space time outside of space time, it was objective in its nature. So it it actually occurred in that sense, at least the way Luke presents it in Acts. So you could take that either as an objective vision rather than a hallucination, or uh, something that did occur in space time. Now, following on to the the next part of the article. Now, without appealing to the Gospels or Acts, and given the fact that the words um, Ophthe and Apocalypto didn't necessarily indicate physical appearances, how exactly are the descriptions Paul gives evidence that he or anyone else really saw a bodily flesh and bone Jesus? 
why would an unbiased reader uh, what Paul says and conclude this given the range of meaning these words can have? The point of this question demonstrates that one must beg the question and assume the appearances were veridical when what Paul actually says provides no evidence for this due to the equal likelihood that these were imaginary or mistaken experiences that had nothing to do with reality. Paul uses the same verb, opthe, uh, uh, for every appearance in the list and makes no distinctions in regards to their nature. He does not indicate any of the appearances happened before Jesus went to heaven either. In order to assume the appearances were veridical slash physical, then one must appeal to the later Gospels and Acts. But all those sources develop later and grow in telling, so appealing to them runs the risk of reading later legendary embellishments into Paul's early testimony. Since the case for the resurrection solely relies on if these people actually saw the risen Jesus, but the evidence is at best inconclusive, then the resurrection argument fails to be persuasive to a neutral observer. Okay, so a few things here. He says, um, what Paul actually says provides no evidence for this, that the appearances were, were veridical. And um, so we'll talk about that just in, in a moment. Um, I think he's mistaken there. And then he says, Paul uses the same word, uh, verb, ofe, for every appearance in the list and makes no distinction in regards to their nature. That's correct. But remember, we said earlier, we showed earlier that the term ofe in itself is vague. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't carry a meaning in terms of the nature of an appearance. It's just simply that something appeared. And then he says, in order to assume the appearances were veridical, physical, then one must appeal to the later Gospels and Acts. No, this is not true because you can still look at what Paul believed in re about resurrection in his writings. So let's just take a look at this. Um, and I, I spelled this out in my large book on the resurrection. Okay, so there are no less than six times in Paul's letters where he makes the case that we will be raised, believers, followers of Jesus will be raised in the same manner Jesus was raised. And then he goes on to discuss in different places how believers are going to be raised. He doesn't talk about how Jesus was raised, but we can get to it indirectly because, again, he says the way we, we will be raised as Jesus was raised. And since he tells us how we will be raised, that informs us how he thinks Jesus was raised, right? He's not referring. He's, he never gives us a narrative of the resurrection. He is writing letters of occasion. He's responding to certain things in the church. The Gospels on the other ends are right. Uh, other uh, way they're writing biography biographies of Jesus. They're writing narratives, so they give us narratives. Paul is not meaning to do that, but he does describe how we're going to be raised from the dead. So let's just look at a couple examples of this. Romans eight eleven he says the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Going to give life to our mortal bodies. Also give life. So the, that means that. Um, he, he gave life to Jesus's mortal body through resurrection. And how's this going to happen? Well, Paul says it in verse 23, at the parousia, when Jesus returns, it, he talks about the redemption of our bodies. So resurrection for believers are going to happen. It's going to occur at the second coming of Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those who sleep. In other words, he's the first to be raised with a resurrection body. Well, when are 
we going to be raised? Paul answers that three verses later in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who belong to Christ at his coming. So again, just as he talks about the redemption of our bodies at the parousia in uh, Romans 8.23, he talks about how we're going to be raised. Our resurrection is going to occur at the parousia. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15.23. So what happens to us in the meantime, those who die as followers of Jesus before the second coming of Christ? Well, Paul answers that elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in Philippians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul is in prison facing a possible execution. And he says, this could go one of two ways for me. Either I can die, be killed here, and be with Christ, or I can remain on in the body for your sake and for the sake of other churches. So the, what Paul sees is when a person dies before the second coming of Christ, their body is buried, their spirit leaves their body and goes to be with Christ in heaven. And when Christ returns, the spirit is reunited with the corpse, which is then resurrected. And we find more of a picture of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. 1 Thessalonians may very well be the earliest letter that Paul wrote, may be the earliest piece of literature in the New Testament, written in the late, in the late 40s, less than 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And here he knows that some people in the church in Thessalonica are grieving because they've had loved ones, they've had friends who were believers, followers of Jesus, but who have died. And they're wondering what's going to happen to them. And so Paul says, look, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. For God will bring with him, when he returns, God will bring with him the spirits of those who have died in Christ, died as followers of Jesus. And then he says, um, the angel will shout, the trumpet will blast, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. Well, wait a minute. If the dead, if God is bringing back the dead with him, then what's being raised? How are the dead in Christ being raised? Well, that's easy. Again, the spirits of the dead, he, God brings back with them. Those spirits are put back into the corpses. The corpses are brought back to life and resurrected, transformed into an immortal, glorious, powerful resurrection body. And so it's a physical, bodily, material resurrection transformation of the physical corpse. And if Paul believes that this is how we're going to be raised from the dead, then that means Paul it, it easily means that Paul believes that this is how Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, and Paul said he ran his gospel message in Galatians 2, past the Jerusalem apostles, and they certified that he was on message with what they were preaching. So this is what the Jerusalem apostles were preaching. And interestingly, it is entirely compatible with what we read in the gospels. Is there any place in the New Testament or even outside of the New Testament where the word soma does not refer to a physical uh, body? Um, uh, you know, I, I did a study on this a long time ago. It was back in, I finished up in 2008. So it's been, what, uh, 13 years. I'm not sure. I do have some stuff in the book. I think that there are a couple of examples 
of uh, soma where it could mean something that was ethereal, not physical or material in nature. So in most cases, it's going to refer to a physical material body, but not necessarily all the time. Um, I think in some cases it refers to like an ethereal body. So um, there are some cases like that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, but like most of the time it refers to like, uh, you know, just a regular body the way that we, the way that we use it. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and I, I, in my, um, in my own um, YouTube series on the, re the, the resurrection of Jesus, that's 12 parts, which is a plug for those listening to the podcast. You could go, go watch that. Um, I, I point to several places where Soma is used and it's referring to a physical body. And one of those places is in G uh, Mary's anointing of Jesus. She said, he says, um, she poured this perfume on my body, Soma, to prepare me for burial. So even, yeah, you know, even though there's like a few cases where it doesn't refer to a physical body, like nine out of 10 times, it seems to me that it, it that's, that's what it's referring to. It's not referring to a ghost. Yeah. And when you have something like, you know, of course, you're, you're, you're rarely going to find a word if it's got a couple meanings that it's going to be 50-50. You know, you're always going to have something balanced more in one direction than the other. But if it's like nine to one, you know, then the burden of proof is going to lay on the shoulders of the one who wants to argue for that minority position. Yeah. So the Reddit article writer goes on to say that the resurrection argument fails its own burden of proof. The only evidence for the resurrection that actually matters are the claimed post-mortem appearances, since there would be no other way to confirm that an actual resurrection had taken place. So the claim solely relies on if these people really saw Jesus alive after his death. Everything else is just a distraction appealing to things like the empty tomb, so-called prophecy fulfillments, and alleged martyrdom stories, etc., are all irrelevant red herrings since they do not directly support the hypothesis that a dead man became alive again. Thus, the burden of proof is on the one who claims Jesus' resurrection actually happened, or, put simply, they need to show these people really saw Jesus alive again after his death. You want me to let's keep stop, going, or do you want to no, stop, stop there just for a moment. Um, all right, so he says, appealing to things like the empty tomb, prophecy fulfillment, alleged martyrdom stories um, are all irrelevant red herrings since they do not directly support the hypothesis that a dead man became live again. Well, they aren't irrelevant. They are relevant um, because the empty tomb suggests a physical resurrection. Um, now, of course, it could also be consistent with the disciples stealing the body or someone else stealing the body, right? So, but you, you're not going to just base a hypo base a hypothesis on one bit of data, uh, on a on a datum. You're going to look at the data plural, and a good hypothesis is going to be able to count for the maximum amount of data, um, and so that's what you look at. Um, there is decent evidence for the empty tomb, and that does suggest, since you're reporting appearances of the risen Jesus, that does suggest a bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. The martyrdom of the apostles, um, and look, I, I know that uh, some of the reports of the martyrdom of the apostles is late, but generally speaking, we've got decent reports that all of them suffered 
continuously for their gospel proclamation. They, they despised of life. They cared little about life. They wanted to get the message out regardless of the consequences. Um, they felt it was that, they, they thought it was that important. So the fact that they're willing to suffer continuously and did suffer continuously, and we know about the martyrdom, it's pretty secure historically, the martyrdoms of Peter, of Paul, of James, the brother of Jesus. And I think some others are also fairly, we can be confident in some others, although just not as certain, but at least those three, at minimum, those three. Um, then I, I think that this shows that these disciples who were proclaiming the risen Jesus, that Jesus had been raised from the dead, they sincerely believed it. Now, again, that doesn't prove that Jesus actually raised, but it does suggest that they weren't lying about it. They actually believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. And now we're faced with what led to those beliefs. Yeah, that's why that's why I uh, always bring up the the martyrdoms uh, in my presentations, uh, my my YouTube series, my blog articles uh, defending the resurrection. It's to show that they weren't just making claims, but they sincerely believed their claims, and that also you know snuffs any hope out of um, theories that involve the disciples being hoaxers. Because if you right. if they if they like say stole the body, and then they they wouldn't go and they and and die for preaching the resurrection because they would know it's false. They, they would know, hey, we stole the body and hid it somewhere. The fact that they were you know were willing to die and some in horribly grotesque ways proves that they they really believed what they were saying. That's right. So and yeah, like what you said about like the empty tomb. Um, it that it's. What people need to understand is that the, the the case for the resurrection is an abductive case. It reasons to the best explanation what has the most explanatory scope. And if you, your hypothesis cannot account for all of the data, if it can only account for one or two of the facts, then it's it should not be preferred over a hypothesis that can explain all of the facts. Like the resurrection of Jesus can not only explain the empty tomb, but the appearances to the disciples, the appearance to Paul uh, and the appearance to his brother, James, who was a skeptic prior to Jesus's death. That's correct. So the, this, uh, this article goes on to say, um, let's see, where did I leave off? Okay. Well, According to the earliest evidence, since Paul uses vision, Galatians 1, 12 to 16, Acts 26, 19, as a resurrection appearance. By the way, I'll just say right there, uh, he, he doesn't say revel, uh, vision. He says revelation, right? And, yeah. And, and he says it's a, it's a revelation of or by or for or from Jesus Christ. It could be any of those um, prepositions there could be used for. it, Right. Uh, then it necessarily follows that claims of visions, experiences that don't necessarily have anything to do with reality, were accepted as evidence of Jesus appearing. Paul makes no distinction in regards to the nature, quality, or type of appearances. He uses the same verb, they, for each one as, to, as if to equate them, and makes no reference to a separate and distinct ascension between the appearances. This calls into question the veracity of the appearances because it totally changes the meaning of appeared. Well, Even though on. Jesus was not only is is that false, you know, <laughs> not only is that false, but you know, as we discussed earlier, um, it doesn't say anything 
about equating the nature of those experiences. Remember the example I gave, Evan talked to Mike, Tim talked to Mike, Kurt talked to Mike. Yeah, you all spoke to me, but it doesn't mean anything about the nature of those. It could have been an online interview. It could have been telephone. It could have been in person. It says nothing about the nature of it. And that's what we have here when the Ophe in 1 Corinthians 15. Even though Jesus wasn't physically present on the earth, one could still claim that they just experienced his presence, and that counted as seeing Jesus. Based on the earliest evidence in Paul's letters, claiming Jesus appeared could be nothing more than feeling like you communicated with him from heaven in a vision or in a dream. Hold on. So I'd say to that, I'd say that's true, but Paul's writings that we just went over informs us that this is not what is meant by it. Yeah. It's only later, after the Gospels are written, that we see the appearances grow more physical slash corporeal, but scholars have long recognized that the Gospels don't actually go back to eyewitnesses, and the data they contain uh, evolves more fantastic, as if a legend is growing. Since Paul is the only verified first-hand source by someone who claimed to see Jesus in the first person, and the appearance to him was a vision, not a physical encounter with a revived corpse, which he does not distinguish from the appearances to the others in 1 Corinthians 15, then the earliest evidence suggests these were originally subjective spiritual experiences. Thus, the resurrection argument fails to meet the burden of proof. They really saw Jesus alive af again after his death. Okay, well here I'd say, you know, we've already dealt with a lot of this, but I do want to, to deal with the question where he says scholars have long uh, not the question, but the uh, statement, scholars have long recognized that the Gospels don't actually go back to eyewitnesses. This is false. Um, I have a student, uh, well, he's no longer my student. His name is Joshua Pelletier, and uh, I supervised his master's thesis at Houston Baptist University. Did a great one, really is. He's going to expand it for his PhD dissertation. And he consulted uh, more than 200 critical scholars writing in English since 1965. So we're talking 55 years here, okay? 55 years of critical scholarship writing on prolegomena uh, related to the Gospel of Mark. And he dealt with three different areas. Um, who wrote Mark? Was Peter, uh, you know, who, who, what, what was the primary source behind Mark? Was it Peter? And when was Mark written? And what he found, the majority of critical scholars dealing on these issues since 1965, he found that the majority of critical scholars dealing with it say that Mark was written between the years 65 and 70, and only a very few of them placed Mark after 70. So then he found that the most, the majority of critical scholars writing since 1965 think uh, they agree with the traditional authorship of Mark. And they also agreed that Mark's primary source was none other than the Apostle Peter. So um, that's that. And then you come to Luke and John. Uh, you got Craig Keener, who has written in his uh, just amazing commentary on Acts, that four-volume set. <clears throat> in volume one, the first 624 pages are devoted to prolegomena to Luke and Acts, right? And in there, he says the majority of scholars, critical scholars today, um, they don't name Luke as the author, but the majority of them do agree that the author of Luke's gospel and Acts was a traveling companion of Paul, who had access to Paul, who had access to the gospel of Mark, and who had access to other 
um, eyewitnesses. So, uh, and then you come to John's gospel and in Keener's commentary on John, he deals with the same kind of issue related to John's gospel where modern critical scholars are. And although the majority of critical scholarship today reject the traditional authorship of the gospel of John as being written by John, the son of Zebedee, they do think that the author used one of Jesus' disciples, someone who had traveled with Jesus, who was an eyewitness, as their primary source. So to say that um, scholars have long recognized that the Gospels don't actually go back to eyewitnesses is just simply false. It, it's a claim that uh, some skeptics make today, some even some skeptical scholars, but it's false. It's, it's very wrong. Do you think that maybe th this author, this writer is? Nope, you're freezing. Conflict with the claim. Hang it on wasn't a second. Based on Evan, you, you froze there. So huh? you froze. So go back. Okay. Okay. So I, I was saying, do you think that maybe this is, um, this author is conflating the, the assertion that the the gospels are not you know most scholars reject the traditional authorship and in that that translates in his mind to they're not based on eyewitnesses it, it could be i mean whoever you know wrote this um they're just not so familiar they're all they're doing is they're appealing to other uh, skeptical scholarship i mean notice this guy doesn't even show familiarity with my book, which is right now many scholars consider to be the book on the resurrection of Jesus. And I deal with it extensively. And if you don't like my book, there's still Tom Wright's book uh, that came out in 2003. That's considered one of the finest books on the resurrection right now that deals with these issues. And he, he doesn't show any familiarity with this. He just shows familiarity with some skeptical scholarship and stuff that's frankly speaking is quite dated. So, um, yeah. 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 Um, I will, I will, I'll put a link to in the show notes to those, uh, to those two books, your book, uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus a new historiographical approach and Tom Wright's book, the resurrection of the son of God. There's a video, a short video that I made, uh, I think just last week, what happens when we die and it's on my YouTube channel and you could link to that as well. Okay. And of course, I'll, I'll link to my own uh, YouTube series on the resurrection because I want people to go uh, watch that. I put a lot of time and effort into that last year. Um, so we'll, we'll go. I'll, I'll put those in the show notes and people can go check it out. I highly recommend that you check out uh, Mike's book. It is, it is, I agree, one of the best works on the, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and yeah, just read his book and read N.T. Wright's book back to back, and you'll get you'll get some of the best scholarly defenses on the his the historical case uh, defenses of the historicity of the central event of Christianity. So, going on to we're almost done with this writing here. There's one more section, and oh, he by said, the way, Evan, there's one more book you might want to list, and it just came out I think in March, and it's by Dale Allison. Um, I read the draft of it and it has since been renamed. So I, I don't know the name of it, but a person can look at that on Amazon or christianbook.com or Barnes and Noble, Dale Allison. 
and uh, he wrote a oh, large yeah. book on the resurrection. And um, and even though he's you know he teaches at Princeton and he's not an evangelical, um, uh, even though he he falls short of where I, I think the evidence leads, he comes up short where I, I think he should have. He still says that the disciples, you know, the text itself suggests that the disciples believed that Jesus had been raised bodily, phys physically from the dead. That's just, it's hard to dispute. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to read Allison's book yet because it, it came out recently and it's sort of expensive. I plan on getting the cheaper Kindle edition, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's on my... It's on my Amazon wish list, and and I I will get to it. Um, my my friend Caleb Jackson, he's uh, recently became the co-host of the podcast Proselytize and Apostatize, uh, Pro uh, Proselytize or Apostatize. Uh, he really recommends it. Um, and I first heard about it from him, and so that's that's why I put it in my Amazon wish list. So going on to the final part of the article, he says, uh, common apologetic objection. But Paul believed in a physical resurrection. Doesn't that mean the appearances would have been physical as well? Response, non sequitur. This is simply conflating Paul's belief in the resurrection with the resurrection appearances when those aren't the same thing. Even if the earliest Christians leave the resurrection, it does not follow that they really saw Jesus alive again. Notice how the belief in a physical resurrection is just a belief, not an empirical observation, because no one actually witnessed the resurrection itself. Rather, these people are only said to have experienced post-resurrection appearances, the nature of which is the exact point of contention. Apologists right, who use the red herring. Stop, stop there for a moment. I just want to say a couple of things. So, um, you know, he's saying just because they claimed resurrection um, doesn't uh, mean that they actually that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They could believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They could believe he appeared to them physically having been bodily raised from the dead, but it doesn't mean that Jesus did. <clears throat> That's correct in a technical sense, but the historian goes beyond that and asks the question, well, what led to those beliefs? And as Dale Allison says, the answer to that question is the prize puzzle of New Testament research. So then when you look at things such as Paul, an enemy of Jesus, out persecuting Christians. All of a sudden, he becomes Christianity's most aggressive advocate because he has an experience he interprets as the risen Jesus appearing to him. You've got um, group appearances, appearances to mul in multiple group settings, which modern psychology uh, strongly suggests that group uh, hallucinations are extremely rare at best, and they are probably impossible. You've got evidence that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And then you, we've got historical evidence that Jesus predicted his imminent death and resurrection. You put these things together and it's like, okay, I may not have a video camera that actually, uh, you know, recorded Jesus coming out of the tomb and the resurrection, but I've got some good historical evidence there for it. Uh, about as good as you have for a lot of other things. Um, so that's that. And then he, he wants empirical observation. And he says, no one actually witnessed the resurrection itself. Well, even if you had uh, someone say, hey, I saw the resurrection. I saw Jesus come out of the tomb. That wouldn't be enough for this person, of course, right? They could have been hallucinating or just making this up or, or whatever. 
So what is empirical evidence for him? And I've got bad news for, for anybody wanting empirical evidence. And that is, we don't have empirical evidence for most of ancient history. We don't have empirical evidence for Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. All we have is testimony, right? And most of that is second and third hand. We don't even have firsthand testimony from Caesar himself crossing the Rubicon. Uh, there's probably Asinius Pollio, which Plutarch and some other authors rely on, but his, his writings are no longer extant. So all we have at best are secondhand sources or indirect testimony from, say, someone like Cicero. Um, all that historians have to go on in most cases are inference to the best explanation. That is how the majority of history is done. Yeah. And in my assessment, I think in terms of ancient history, uh, the resurrection is probably the best attested historical fact of ancient history. I once, I, I once uh, worded this poorly. I said it's the best attested fact of history. And somebody said, well, I think, we, I think we've got good evidence that Bill Clinton won the election that's better than was for the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm like, okay, I, yeah, I got to put the qualifier in there. Ancient history, like stuff that happened thousands of years ago. Um, I don't know that I would go that far, though, Evan. Um... I wouldn't say it's the best attested fact in ancient history, but it doesn't need to be. I mean, Jesus' death by crucifixion is certainly better attested than the resurrection. Um, but the resurrection doesn't need to be the best attested fact of the ancient world. It just needs to be sufficiently attested. Otherwise, if something has to be the best attested fact in order to believe it, you're only going to have one thing from the past that's going to be believable, right? So it doesn't need to be. Even if you disagree and you think it is the best attested fact in the ancient world, um, it, I'm sure you'll agree it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be sufficiently attested. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But that was just that was just the, um, that was just expressing my um, how good I think the evidence is. When I think about other events that happened at around the same time, it's just I, I think it's you know it's not it's not quite as good, um, but even if there's something that is better attested, I think the evidence is certainly sufficient. Well, you know what? It's, it's sufficient to have justified truth. I had heard, I heard uh, a few Christian apologists say that the resurrection of Jesus is as well attested as Caesar's crossing the Rubicon. And I, you know, I always thought to myself, no way. Um, and then, I don't know, a year or so ago, maybe two years ago, I, I actually looked at the evidence and I think there's, if I remember right, there's nine ancient sources that either mention directly or indirectly to Caesar's crossing the Rubicon. And what I mean by indirectly, you know, Julius Caesar talks about himself in his commentary on the Civil War. He talks about himself being in Ravenna. And then later on in the text, he talks about himself being in, in Ariminum. Well, you got to cross the Rubicon to get from Ravenna to Ariminum. So he doesn't actually mention the Rubicon crossing, but it, you know, you can infer that he crossed it from, you know, the text. So that would be an indirect uh, testimony from him. But, you know, so I think we have a total of nine sources within, I don't know, within 200 years of the event or something like that. We actually have better documentary evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than we have for Caesar's crossing the Rubicon. Now, I wouldn't say in that sense that 
the resurrection is better attested than Caesar's crossing the Rubicon because you don't actually get uh, the Roman history of changing from republic to empire unless Caesar crosses the Rubicon. And you have the, the revolution that occurs as a result. Whereas you may be able to posit that Christianity rises um, and, and, and grows apart from the resurrection. At least it would be easier to do that than it would be that Rome, you know, converts from uh, republic to empire. So there's an explanatory power uh, with um, Caesar's crossing the Rubicon that I think is, is greater than the explanatory power of uh, Jesus' resurrection. Although I think the resurrection of Jesus, the explanatory power of the resurrection hypothesis is very strong. I think the explanatory power of the hypothesis that Caesar crossed the Rubicon is a little stronger, but the documentary evidence itself and the quality of that evidence is actually better for the resurrection than it is for Caesar's crossing the Rubicon. So, uh, you know, depending on how you want to look at that, I, I would call it a wash. They're probably about equal, which you think about it, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so this this author goes on. Um, he, he seems to in, in this section that we stopped at. He seems to just uh, summarize his conclusion. So I don't even I don't even think it's if we should you know go read it or not. Um, he, he says the apologists who use the red herring of appealing to the resurrection make the further assumptions that, that the physical resurrection entailed that Jesus remaining on earth in order to be physically seen and touched and it's not found in Paul's letters and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, well, I would just it, say there, some of its repetition. Yeah. I, I just say there that, yeah, uh, you know, the nature of the experience of the appearances aren't directly talked about in Paul's letter. In other words, every case instance in which he talks about the appearance, uh, his own, the appearance to himself, it's, there's, there's not really anything clear in there in terms of the nature of that appearance. Uh, we know it, it seems clear that he believes bodily resurrection of Jesus, but it's not really talking about the nature of the appearance of Jesus to Paul. Um, so I'd agree with that. But the Gospels are pretty are crystal clear on it. And I do think there's some decent evidence that the Gospels are rooted in eyewitness testimony. And in fact, the majority of critical scholars writing since 1965 in English seem to agree, at least with the Gospel of Mark. And according to Keener, with Luke and John, they would say the same thing. Nice. So thank you, Dr. Lacona, for being on this podcast. It was uh, This has been a great discussion. I think it's going to edify a lot of uh, people, both, both believer and non-believer. And um, thank you for coming on. Well, you're welcome, Evan. And keep up the good work, brother. Thanks. So thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Um, if I will be sure to pick up Dr. Michael Icona's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical book approach, um, and also N.T. Wright's book, the, the Resurrection of the Son of God. And also I want to point out that um, the popular book on the resurrection that he co-wrote with Gary Habermas, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, it recently had an audiobook book. Uh, adaptation come out oh, so, I didn't know that. So if you like audiobook 
And if you if you want to if you want to listen to that, you can go uh, get that as well. Um, I want to give a shout out to my patrons, Zach Miller, Slam RN, James Gadomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to support this ministry financially, go to patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Peace out. God bless. And I will see you next time. And keep using the brains that God gave you. Thank you.